All right, well, good evening, everybody. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josiah Allen, and uh, it's a pleasure to have you here on a beautiful, sunny evening. Um, Again, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. My dad's actually here today. He drove up from Rochester to come watch me preach, but I think mostly to go to the Twins game, which is what we did earlier before before that. Um, They lost, unfortunately, but it was a great time. Uh, So actually, in honor of my dad, I'm going to open tonight by talking about one of our mutual loves, which is Western movies. So my dad is a big Western fan, and I have a lot of childhood memories of watching John Wayne movies with my dad growing up. Actually, so my oldest brother, my oldest brother is named Jake, and most people, you know, grew up in a good Christian home, most people think that he was named after Jacob from the Bible. No, in fact, he was named after Big Jake, uh, which is my dad's favorite John Wayne movie. So uh, if you're a Western fan, you probably know the name uh, Sergio Leone. Sergio Leone is, is one of the most famous Western uh, movie directors of all time. He invented the uh, genre of Western movies called the Spaghetti Western. He's an Italian guy. And uh, his most famous film is, is, I'm sure you've probably heard of, is, is The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly with Clint Eastwood. Um, and uh, also considered to be one of the greatest Western movies of all time. Uh, now, despite all of that, he was actually never, he never was nominated nor won an Academy Award. He did one time win, uh, or actually was nominated for a Golden Globe. And it was for a movie that you guys probably haven't heard of. Uh, it's called Once Upon a Time in America. Uh, it came out in 1984, and when it came out, it was, uh, it was first debuted at the Cannes Film Festival in France, and it was, when, it, when it was first showed, everybody thought this is going to be you know, the IT movie of the year, it's going to blow up, it's going to be huge. When it came to America, it was an absolute flop, uh, just bombed. The critics hated it, the, the audiences hated it, and part of the reason for that is that when it came overseas to, to America, when it came here, uh, the, uh, the, the distributors decided that they didn't really like how the movie was set up. The movie was, in its original form, 229 minutes long, just pretty long movie. Uh, and the, uh, the, the distributors said, eh, a little too long, so I'm, we're, they're going to cut out 90 minutes of it. So they took out 90 minutes, dropped it down to 139 minutes. And uh, it, when you watch the movie, so it's a gangster movie. It's got Robert De Niro as this gangster, and it sort of shows, shows his life throughout time. Uh, and so there's all these flashbacks to different points throughout, throughout his life, and they're, sort of, they're not necessarily in chronological order. And they figured, out ah, American audience is not too smart. Uh, they're not going to understand this, this whole weird flow of time and stuff. So we're going we're gonna to take it all, and we're going to put it in chronological order. So they recut the entire film and put it into chronological order, all without Sergio Leone's uh, consent or involvement or even knowledge. Uh, so it was a huge, huge flop. In fact, one critic called it the worst movie of 1984. But that same critic, uh, years later, was able to see the original version, the 229-minute version that debuted at the Cannes Film Festival. And when he saw that, he actually said, this is one of the best movies of the decade. And, and today, it's, it's still considered one of the greatest gangster movies of all time. Uh, so the, the moral here is that oftentimes when we, uh, when we read a story and we change the ending, we sometimes miss a lot of what's going on, and, and it really changes our perceptions of the story. So today we're going to talk about a, a, a similar sort of story. Uh, we're going to talk about the story of Jonah, and I think most people have heard the story of Jonah. We're going to be turning there in a few minutes to, to Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4. Uh, but this is another one of the stories that uh, has faced some edits in some of our modern retellings of the story. And if you haven't grown up around the, the church, you still probably have heard the story of Jonah. Um, but if, in case you haven't, we'll, we'll run through it real quickly here. So this is, this is how it, it, it's usually told. Once there was a man named Jonah, 
Jonah was a prophet. His job was to speak on behalf of God to the people. And one day, God told Jonah to give uh, a message to the city of Nineveh. And the message was this, that because of their great wickedness, God was going to destroy the city. Now, Jonah didn't want to give this message, so he actually hopped on the first boat heading in the other direction to a city called Tarshish. Now, we don't know where Tarshish is exactly. Some people think maybe in the, on the coast of Spain, uh, but it was sort of a byword for, you know, somewhere that's sort of really out of the way. Uh, so today we might say, you know, they're heading to Timbuktu or something like that. So it's sort of this, this place out in, in the middle of nowhere. So he's on the boat, and a giant storm comes up. The sailors are starting to freak out. Uh, Jonah's actually still asleep in the bottom of the boat, and he, uh, the, the sailors start, start worrying. They, 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 they are pagan sailors, and so they start trying to figure out, okay, which god is responsible for this storm? Which god have we ticked off, and how do we uh, make it right with who, whichever god that is? So they actually they do their sort of version of, of rolling dice to figure out whose fault this was, and the number lands on Jonah. So they go down, they, they wake Jonah up, they're asking him a bunch of questions. He says, yeah, I'm running away from God, uh, and the only way to stop the storm is for you to throw me overboard. So they, they toss him overboard after some deliberation. They toss him overboard, and immediately the storm stops. So there's Jonah floundering in the water, and all of a sudden, as we all know, the big fish or whale or whatever it is, sea creature, comes up and swallows Jonah whole. Now he's in the, he's in the belly of that sea creature for about three days, and down in, in the belly there, he prays, he repents, uh, he promises to fall through on the promises that he made to God, and after three days, the, the fish vomits him back up onto dry land. Jonah heads straight to Nineveh, preaches the message that, that God is going to destroy the city, and uh, everybody in the city who heard the message from the king on down repents of their sin, turns to God, and, God, and cries out to mercy, and God hears their prayer. And as a result, he decides not to destroy the city, and the city is saved. And everybody lived happily ever after the end. So that's how the story usually goes. Now, in that version, Jonah is sort of the hero of the story who sort of goes on this little kind of journey of discovery that heroes often go to, right? He's, he starts out, he's this prophet. He sort of, you know, goes through his down point of, of running away from God, eventually getting eaten alive, which is really a down point, and then, uh, and then repents, follows through on his mission, uh, preaches the message, and, and the people are saved, and the story's uh, a happy ending. Now, the problem with that story is that that's not actually how the story ends, uh, that's where we usually stop the story, but that's not how the story ends. And so today we're actually going to look at the full story, the director's cut version of Jonah, if you will, and we'll see how the author of the story wanted to end the story and, how, uh, and what that means for us today as we follow Jesus. So if you turn with me, we're going to start in at the very end of chapter 3, the very last verse of chapter 3, and then we'll spend most of our time in chapter 4 of Jonah. So I'm going to read here, uh, mostly from the NIV, although I sprinkle in a couple versions where I uh, like the, a different version a little bit better. So starting in chapter 3, verses t- verse 10. When God saw what they did, the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall when I fleed to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Now Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, 
and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know right from wrong, and also many animals? The end. Okay, that's a very different ending. Uh, and it's sort of a weird ending. It literally ends with a question mark, which stories usually don't do. They usually use you try to wrap those up and answer those questions before we finish the story. But this one ends literally with a question mark. So this isn't sort of your normal happy ending. This is more like an Inception, Memento, Sopranos, like cut to black sort of ending, uh, which is a little bit different. So what exactly is going on here? Well, the first question that we need to ask is, why is Jonah so angry about this? I mean, he, he's, he's here. He's supposed to be preaching this message. Why he's, is he so ticked off? Well, there's actually, there, I think there's two things that are at play here. There's, there's one that's sort of a personal thing that's going on with Jonah, and, and one that's more at sort of a social, religious level um, that, are, that are feeding into what's happening here. So first on the personal level, throughout the book of Jonah, we get this picture of him as a guy who knows all the right Sunday school answers to the questions, but isn't necessarily in tune with God's compassionate heart. In the first chapter, we didn't, you know, we were kind of zooming over the, the, the details of this. So in the first chapter, during the storm, when the sailors are questioning Jonah, they ask, you know, who are you? Where are you from? What God do you serve? And he gives this great reply. And for, in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God who made the sea and the dry land. That's a good answer. The problem is that he's saying that he fears the God who made the sea and the dry land while he's trying to run away from that God on a boat in the opposite direction. Not exactly the actions of someone who is fearing God. Uh, we see it even more clearly in the verse that we just read, so chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, basically, see, you know, he's like, see God, I knew you were going to save these people, that's why I didn't want to come. I knew that you were a God who is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and I knew that you were going to rescue these people, and so that's why I didn't even want to come. Um, so Jonah knows exactly who God is, and he knows exactly what God is planning to do with the people of Nineveh, uh, the people of Nineveh and the, he doesn't want to come for exactly that reason. We get the sense that when Jonah actually eventually heads to Nineveh after the, the, the journey in the, in the sea creature, it's not really because he had some sort of conversion experience in the belly of the sea creature. It, you know, if we're being most charitable to him, it's, it's, he's acting out of obedience to God. And I think if we're being a little less charitable to him, I think he's more acting about, out of fear of what God would do if he doesn't obey a second time. I mean, he literally just got eaten alive. What's, what's, where's, where do you go from there? What's the escalation from there? So, Jonah clearly isn't sharing God's compassion towards the Ninevites. But why not? What's going on? What's impeding his ability to, to show the same love and mercy that God literally just showed him by rescuing him from drowning to these Ninevites that he came to preach to? And this is where we turn to what's sort of happening in Jewish society and religion throughout the time. 
Now you see, when, when, from the very, very beginning of the nation of Israel, when God chose the people of Israel, he didn't choose them because of anything that they did. He chose them because he wanted to pour his love and power on, on this particular people in this particular period of time and, and, and use them to show the rest of the world who he is. So if you look at um, Genesis chapter 11, this is the, the passage where God tells Abraham, he blesses Abraham and, and uh, gives him a promise for what the nation of Israel will be. He says, in you all the families of earth shall be blessed. If you fast forward a little bit in Exodus, God tells Moses that Israel is supposed to be a kingdom of priests, supposed to be communicating who God is to the rest of the world. And if you fast forward a little bit more in Psalm 67, the psalmist takes the, the, one of the most famous Jewish prayers, uh, the, the Shamash it's called, may God be gracious unto you, may, uh, bless you, make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And he actually adds a why to that. So he says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all the nations. So Israel was supposed to be the light of the world that was supposed to show who God was to the rest of, of the world. Uh, and ultimately, that gets, that gets ultimately fulfilled in Christ, but that was something that Israel was supposed to do all along the way. And of course, they kept forgetting about this, and they kept on turning more inward. And, and throughout the history of, of Judaism, we see this, this more inward turn towards a, a, a center of Jewishness and, and being more concerned with their Jewishness and the laws, not God's laws, but the laws that started to, to form around the law of God. And, and that ultimately resulted in them losing compassion for people who were sort of outside the circle. Ultimately, we see this very, very clearly when Jesus preaches the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That whole passage of the Good Samaritan is all about this whole idea of what is loving, what is, what is your, who is my neighbor, and what does loving my neighbor as myself really mean, which is part of the law. Jesus says that part of loving your neighbor is stepping outside of these social and racial and religious boundaries to love people who are other than us. So where is this in Jonah? Well, we didn't have time to read it, but when we look back into chapter 2, so chapter 2 is when he's praying in the belly of the sea creature. He's very thankful to God uh, for saving him. He vows to follow through on the promises that he made, but he never says he's sorry for running away, and he never uh, mentions any sort of change of heart toward the Ninevites. In fact, there's only one sort of passing reference to the Ninevites. Towards the very, very end of his prayer, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, at face value, that is absolutely true. Uh, our God is a jealous God. He, he will not have any rivals for his worship. Um, but at the same time, Jonah's is so caught up in his negative image of the Ninevites that he cannot show them the same mercy, even when they repent and turn from, from their idols, he cannot show them the same mercy that he himself received from God. So why is Jonah angry? He's angry because although he knows who God is and what the right Sunday school answers are, he's let his hatred for these unclean foreigners become a barrier to tuning his heart to sing God's grace, like we just sang. 1 Corinthians 13, that, that famous pastor that gets read at every single person's wedding, uh, says, If I have a faith that can move mountains, but don't have love, I am nothing. Paul might have said to Jonah, even if you know all the right Sunday school answers, if you don't have love, you're not in sync with God's heart. So, Jonah has his little outburst or tantrum or whatever we want to call it, 
And then he goes up on a hill and, that overlooks the city because, hey, maybe God will change his mind. Again, he just changed his mind. Maybe he'll change it back and, and, and destroy the city after all. So, so he goes up on and sits down on the hill, builds a little shelter for himself and, and hangs out. I sort of picture him sort of eating popcorn or something like that, waiting for the fireworks to start. And then there's this whole weird scene with this plant and this worm and what's going on with this, with this uh, passage here. Well, God is setting up a little object lesson for Jonah. And this is important. This, this business about the plant and the worm, this is sort of the key to understanding the whole book of Jonah. So brace yourself because I'm, I'm going to zoom in on some, some words for a second. So stay with me, but then we'll zoom back out. So if you look at uh, verse 6, and depending on your translation, this may be more or less obvious. So in verse 6, my, my version says, Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Now compare the language there to verse 1 of chapter 4. My version says that Jonah was exceedingly angry uh, when, when God saved the people. So there's this, this parallel that's there, and that's in the original text too. It's not just in the English translation, but in the original text, there's this parallel language God, where he's very glad because of the plant and very angry uh, because of what God did. This is no coincidence. The plant here is meant to be a symbol to both Jonah and to us of God's compassion. You see, as we said before, Jonah knows the right answers. He knows exactly who God is, and he, God is exactly who Jonah says that he is. He is gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And throughout the book, from saving him in the ocean to now with this plant, God has shown nothing but loving kindness to Jonah. But as we can obviously see, there's a clear disconnect between how happy Jonah is at this tiny mercy that God gave him in the form of a little shade on a hot day and the great mercy that God has shown the Ninevites by, repent, by turning from destruction. In the same way, now when that worm comes and attacks the plant, Jonah gets mad, right? He gets mad again. In verse 9, he repeats exactly what he said back in verse 3 where he says, death is better to me than life, or I'd rather die than live right now. I'm so angry. Again, this parallel language isn't an accident. It's there to point out how messed up Jonah's priorities are. God gave Jonah mercy in the form of the plant and then took it away through the worm. So in a small way, God is giving Jonah exactly what Jonah wanted God to give to the Ninevites, to take away the mercy that, that he had just sh showed on them. So the plant and the worm are here to remind us of one overarching truth. God is God. And he will show compassion to whomever he wants to show compassion to, whether we like it or not. And this is good news because, frankly, we are terrible judges of character. I give mercy to people that I like or people who I want to impress or people I want something from, and I withhold my mercy from people who I have a bias against or who slighted me or just because I woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day. This is good news because God is far better at distributing justice and mercy than we are. But more than that, this isn't just good news. This is the good news, right? Remember Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his great love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just as God showed compassion on the Ninevites, so God shows compassion on us when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place, taking the judgment that was rightfully ours. That is God's gift to us. He's decided to give it. And the only thing that we can do is acknowledge that gift and trust that we are in the hands of a gracious and merciful God 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So what should we take away from the story of Jonah? I have a few things, and uh, we're going to start out easy, and then we're going to get harder as we go along. So first, we need to recognize and rejoice over everything that I just said, that God is a God of compassion who has, just like with Jonah and the Ninevites, been far more favorable to us than we deserve. That's pretty easy. Rejoicing is pretty easy, so that's, that's the easy one. Second, this one's a little harder. We need to recognize that the God of compassion who is at work in Nineveh is the same God who is at work today. As Jordan mentioned last week, the role of Christianity as a guiding force in our culture is is starting to erode. Christianity simply just does not have the same influence on our cultural norms and values that it did 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago. And just like Jonah, we have a choice to make about that. We can get angry and and yell and, and wait for the fire and brimstone to fall, or we can go and engage with the people in this changing culture with the same love that God has for them. This doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything that that goes on. definitely does not mean that, but it does mean that we love people regardless. It's going to get harder. Part of loving people like that is recognizing and confessing the extent to which we as the church have been complicit in enabling anger and hatred of those who are different from us in one way or another. We are living in a time where racial and political tensions are the highest that they've been, certainly in my lifetime, probably in the last 50, 60 years, um, you know, maybe in the 60s and 70s era, um, certainly since then. Issues such as race, immigration, religion, LGBTQ issues, all these things are very front and center in our culture right now. And if we're honest with ourselves, the church has had a less than stellar track record on showing grace in many of these scenarios. And let me be clear, I'm not advocating for a particular political position or, or, or even necessarily a, 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 an attitude that we, that, that we need to have in terms of our actions, uh, except for this. You know, there are very different policies and polis- positions on a lot of these different issues, and there's a lot of room in there for faithful Christians to, to disagree. But where there cannot be any disagreement is in the attitude of love that we have toward our neighbors. If there's a policy or position that exists that prevents us from acting in love toward our neighbor, that is a policy that we as Christians need to stand against. 1 John 4 has a very hard word for us that is painfully black and white. It says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. So now we're going to get personal, and it's going to get even harder. Coming off of that verse, is there someone that you hate? Hate's a strong word. It's, it, there's something when we hear that word that we sort of recoil from it a little bit, and we want to say, well, no, there's nobody that I, that I hate, per se. I mean, there's people that I don't particularly care for, maybe, uh, but I wouldn't say that I hate them. And that may be true, or that may be us trying to soften the blow of that last verse a little bit. So let me ask it in a different way. What person or people would make you feel a little uncomfortable if they walked through those back doors there, came and sat in the pew next to you and started asking you questions about God? Who, who are the people or, or, or persons in your life that would make you feel a little uncomfortable if they did that? Might be someone from a particular, particular ethnic group, religion, cultural group, or might be a specific person, a family member or a friend who, who you've had a falling out with. Honestly, for me, there's, there's an old boss of mine who made some promises to me and my family that they didn't keep, 
and it put my family in a, in a particularly difficult position of time, a particularly difficult position for a period of time. And I still have a little bit of resentment over that. And if that person walked through those doors today, uh, it would take me some work. I'd be cordial, but it would take some work for me to get to a place where I would be able to have an open and honest dialogue with them about spiritual things. My anger and resentment towards that person are impeding my ability to demonstrate God's love toward them. So who's that person for you? Take a minute, think about it, and then we're going to do another hard thing. We're going to pray for them, and we're going to pray for us and for the church as a whole. So if you would, we'll, we'll bow your heads with me. We'll, we'll take a few minutes of silence here, and then we'll pray together. God, we praise you because you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, just like Jonah said. God, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, by what we've done and by what we've left undone. We confess that we haven't loved you with our whole hearts, and we confess that we don't have the compassion that you have for others. There are people that we're thinking of right now, God, that we have a hard time loving. God, we don't want anything to stand in the way of your love and compassion. Take away our anger toward these people. Help us to see them as children of God and objects of your love and mercy. We pray that they would grow in their knowledge of you. Pray that, they, that those who haven't trusted in you would. And we pray that fractured relationships would be healed wherever possible. God, we confess that our anger and fear have kept us from showing your love to this broken, hurting, and divided country. God, we are sorry, and we repent. Take away our anger. Fill us with your love. We know that this is something that we can't do on our own. It's got to come from you. We thank you that you sent Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, so that we could be made right with you through him, and help us show that same love towards others. We thank you, God, for that great mercy, and we thank you for all of the small mercies that you provide along the way. We, pray for, we, we thank you for all those different ways that you make those plants that grow up and shelter us from the heat of the day and the hardships of life. Thank you, God. We love you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.